Good evening. Happy Halloween. <laughs> yeah. You know what does not go well with podcasting? <laughs> um, I don't know. Burritos? <laughs> Did you say Doritos or burritos? Why not both? Doritos certainly wouldn't go well. Because Doritos and laptops don't mix well. <laughs> They're really just disgusting. It's like why laptops and teenagers don't mix well, basically. You just have to commit if you're if you're a Dorito laptop or not. It's, really... it's a one, it's a one way road. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. If you, it's sort of like a, if you ever smoked in a car and tried to sell it as <laughs> if as if it was a car that was not smoked in. Yeah, someone's exactly. gonna get in there and be like, dude, this car is yeah. reeks like cigarette smoke. In 1989, you had one caramel or kick caramel. Oh my god. This day is done. Yeah, Let's really. just call it now. <laughs> caramel. I, I always, you know, pictured you as a caramel guy, but anyhow. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of the same. If you, you know, yeah. listed a laptop on, you know, whatever service you want to sell something and then the person bought it and they unboxed it and the thing, you know, if you ever had Doritos and touched it, it'd be clear. Light, light Dorito usage possible. Yeah. It should be a question on a life insurance form. <laughs> Have you ever eaten a Dorito? Yeah, and, and used a, a computer used a laptop peripheral. It'd be Have like you... the same as if you if you say you've like smoked in the last thirty five years. Yeah, you're like oh, your your rates are seventeen times higher. Have you had a Cool Ranch taco and then touched your television remote? Because <laughs> oh. that explains everything I need to know about yeah. you. That explains why there's no girlfriend. <laughs> Yikes! Yeah. Hey, hey, easy. Some <laughs> some of us like Cool Ranch tacos. Okay. Yeah, I was just smart, and I got married before I started eating them publicly. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, yeah, because you you kind of can't. You got to be on your best behavior, or at least <laughs> at least no Cool Ranch behavior before oh, the fact. Yeah, so that actually was not uh, this list of things was not what I had in mind when I asked the oh, question. I'm sorry. Uh, allergies. Allergies uh, do not play well with podcasting. What are we allergic to? Mold? Not clear. Uh, I'm allergic to Sunday, uh, <laughs> October 25th. That's what I'm allergic to. And I'm fiercely allergic to this day. <laughs> I'm sorry I'm laughing at you. That's just uh, too good. I don't yeah. know. You were you were doing some outdoorsy, mucky water activities today. You could have been related to that. Yeah, the, the issue um, existed before the hike today. Okay. All right. Yeah. All right. Sorry. And, uh, I'm, you know... Hair of the dog. You know, I figured I'd throw something that would cause allergies at it to see if that fixed the problem. Interesting. It didn't. Yeah. Uh, seems to be just as bad or worse. Oh, man. Um, okay. So today is going to be a teach me something. We should have a segment, you know, like teach me something, Kyle, episode. <laughs> we should really and, pay to get a jingle made. Um, that would be sort of fundamentally opposed to the basic <laughs> ethos of the show. What what is the, is the ethos just no jingles? Uh no, I mean not specifically. So wait, no, see here's the thing. Okay, I can understand no pre-recorded jingles. Now what if next week I hire a jingle crew to come and stand behind me at my house? Oh, I'm good with and that. And do it live. Let's do it live. <laughs> Anything that gives me the excuse to say do it live, All right. I'll take let me, it. Let me start googling. I wonder how much a jingle crew costs on a Sunday night. You know, musicians, I, I don't think they're charging premium rates as a, as a oh, basic, basic rule. Right? Like, I don't think those complaints are, are, are made up. All right. Um, 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I think Spotify would pay him like uh, four and a half cents. So <laughs> yeah, but this, that's not a live performance. That would be if I just played it behind me on speakers, maybe. <laughs> and then we just right. get sued, so it all it would all work out. I see. Right, well, right. anyhow, today's teach, uh, teach something. Me Something Kyle episode is brought to us by, well, it's it's clear who this this would be brought to us by. You know, our friendly sponsor, lynda.com. Oh. It's the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash Ruby on Rails. Lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. You can go to Lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Well, today I'm going to feed my curious mind live with some uh, (laughs) knowledge dropped by Kyle Daigle. But if you want to go and feed your curious mind after... uh, after this amazing experience, go to, go to You can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can learn at your own pace, browse, uh, the, the course transcript to follow along or search for an answer and skip to that point in the video. You can even create and save playlists of courses you want to watch to customize your learning path or share with your friends, colleagues, and team members. So, uh, go to lynda.com. You'll get an unlimited or you'll get unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Uh, you can get a, t- a free 10 day trial. If you go to lynda.com slash Ruby on rails, thanks to them for sponsoring. All right, sir. So, uh, today's uh, lesson is going to be about web hooks because you were, I- I'm going to, you know, peek behind the curtain. Oh God. You were making some comments the other day about how you have, uh, much to, teach about with respect to webhooks, which makes sense given your occupation. And I have much to learn about webhooks because I consume them a decent amount. I mm-hmm. have, and I've created webhook services, but nothing ever that was like super mission critical where, you know, I would like break out into a cold sweat if it went down for 30 minutes. <laughs> um, whereas you, uh, are, are somewhat directly responsible for a webhook service that you, that would cause significant problems if down for yeah, make some people kind of angry probably. Right. So, uh, I think you could teach me how to be a professional webhook, uh, developer and I'm, I'm excited about this. Okay. Uh, okay. Let's start from first principles. Uh, when people say webhooks, what do they mean? So generally speaking, a webhook is when a service you use will make an HTTP post to your website, your service, your server, when a certain event or action is taken. Um, Speaking of events and actions, I'm going to drink wine while you say this, so just continue. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So yeah, so I mean, it's usually used, uh, so, you know, at GitHub or if you use a payment processor like Stripe or Braintree, um, you know, when, when a transaction is settled, for example, they, uh, you know, you, you'd be going and getting a HTTP post from me, from GitHub or from, you know, the service containing the data that is relevant to that event. So for example, you push some code up to GitHub and then, uh, you know, we'll basically send you an HTTP post with a body full of JSON or form encoded information. So that way you can act on it right away. Um, so quick side story on something you just said. So I, uh, uh, no joke. So you just said the, the phrase like, you know, I will post something 
And it made me think of, of, of a funny moment I have like a hundred times a day, which is every time in a, in a work related Slack room, the, the GitHub integration sort of posts a message. I like have anthropomorphized it into you, which <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Like, you know, Kyle's mentioning the issue comment that was just made on my, my issue. Yeah. So maybe it, maybe, maybe I wasn't anthropomorphizing. Maybe that's just accurate. Anyhow, yeah, no, it's continue. literally me. I just sit there and I watch you do it, and then I type some code in, and it sends the event. Now, how many monitors do you have to have hooked up to your laptop? So I've been researching some better monitors because my current monitor is not sufficient for this. It is not up to the task. Yeah, have you of... seen the movie The Matrix? <laughs> it's something like that, actually. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah, so I mean. This is, uh, I think they're pretty powerful, and, and, and these have existed in, in, in some format, you know, sort of on the internet for quite some time, right? Uh, you know, in some ways, like a form post is basically just this. We're just hopping across uh, services. We're going, you know, uh, from we're, we're receiving it at GitHub or, you know, at the service we're, we're building, and then we're sending it along to another customer, another integrator, or whatever. Um, sometimes, if you're familiar uh, in this area, you might be considering a streaming API. So like Twitter has a streaming API um, where uh, similar to webhooks, an event happens on Twitter. One of your friends makes a tweet. One of your friends follows, whatever. Um, and you want to know right away that that's happened. Twitter will allow you to basically go and open a connection to them. And then they will stream data back to you for as long as you've held that connection open. Uh, there's a couple of technological benefits to that. And there's a bunch of downsides as well. Um, you know, the benefits being if you're anticipating a large volume of events um, happening very quickly, uh, you know, holding that connection open can be quite valuable. So that way you're not sort of paying the HTTP tax every single time. Um, How much is the tax as like a percentage? Uh, of the, 30% the... of your income. <laughs> is it? It's progressive yeah. though. So Margin, Marginal or flat? <laughs> oh man. Um, so yeah, so... Uh, so it's not flat. I think it's. Uh, I mean, it's, yeah, I would say it's marginal. Uh, no, it's actually. I think that what they call a regressive tax, right? It taxes the. It taxes the the like less the, expensive, the less things, expensive more. things more. Yeah, yeah, I would. Agree. I never thought about HTTP as a regressive tax. You know, I am. <laughs> I am very lousy at you know creating you know I don't know blog posts that have. Um, I don't know that clickbaity sort of feel to them where they get lots of attention. But I think that that's, I think seeing that kind of headline and actually be willing to, to, uh, step up to the plate and write something that jackassy, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's what it takes right there. HTTP is regressive tax. Anyhow, continue. <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're the regressive tax <laughs> vote for me. And, uh, <laughs> So anyway, uh, so yeah, so I mean, you, th- that's that's one of the major benefits of streaming really is if you're having a large variety of information coming in. Um, I think the big upside of webhooks is that essentially if you have a web server, you can receive them, right? It's very simple. You're basically getting a form post. Um, and so if your site has any sort of posting functionality at all, uh, you know, it's be very simple to receive the data. Um, streaming while powerful generally requires you to open a connection, hold it open in some sort of background process, fish the data where you need it to go. It's outside of a known quantity. Um, and there's good reason for that, obviously, but, uh, you know, 
when you're just like, hey, I'm going to try this out or I'm going to hack this or I just want to receive these events and it's going to do this simple thing and move on. Um, I find webhooks to sort of be, be very a very good place to start um, because it's relatively low barrier to entry for the person sending them. It's super low barrier to entry to receive them. Uh, and then you can always just change the method of delivery later and go to something like a streaming API instead. How many services that are that are popular that that you know we all would use use a streaming API aside from Twitter? Oh man, like, does GitHub have one? No, no, we do not. Does Slack have one? Uh, so Slack has a real time messages API, I believe is what they call it, which is essentially a streaming API using WebSockets. Oh, okay. Um, and so they do have it. Uh, I, I believe Salesforce also has it. Some of the sort of real timey data <laughs> they have. They have one of everything, though. Yeah, I mean, couple of everything, but <laughs> they have aggressively checked the boxes. <laughs> I wouldn't say that it's it's particularly normal. Um, you know, because it's it's both complex to implement and relatively hard to run. Right, like a webhook. Worst case scenario, you get it a little late. I don't. I don't send the data to you late. Um, with a streaming API, you need to be up, right? You need to be able to accept and hold a connection, um, and then send the data across. So there's kind of two barriers or you know boundaries there: the ability to allow a client to connect to you and persist that connection, as well as the ability to take the events and pass them down that pipe that that is open, right? Um, so I, I think that for good reason, most places don't implement them. Um, well, I say we scope this conversation to webhooks then. Yeah, definitely. I think it's just important to have the, uh, you know, uh, a little bit of backstory and why I think webhooks is, are are valuable technologically is just that they're very simple to receive. Mm-hmm. You know. So at GitHub, what are some examples of the kind of uh, payload or events that could trigger webhooks? Sure. So the simplest one and the one that sort of started webhooks uh, is the ability to receive. Uh, an event every push. So every time you push code up to GitHub, we'll send you a payload that contains the commit information, the commit message, um, where you can learn more about the repository, who was the one that did the pushing, what time it happened, all that sort of stuff. So if you use any sort of chat tool, generally speaking, they are receiving a webhook to populate that message uh, on every push. If you use a CI tool or a continuous integration tool that runs your tests automatically, it's receiving a webhook, generally speaking. Um, to, to know that it's time to, you know, build your code or whatever. What's the, what's the not generally speaking? So some, um, some integrators and customers use polling instead. Some, some bad actors use polling. Yes. I would say bad API citizens is what (laughs) I like to say. say? (laughs) Yes. Some bad. Yeah. I use the word bad actors a fair, fair amount at work. Uh, (laughs) I can can imagine. uh, But yeah, I mean the, the main, the main reason, um, well, the main good use case for that, right, is that you don't want to allow any inbound communication um, networking-wise. That's kind of like the only sound reason to poll. Um, but even that's a little bit dicey for me uh, personally. You know, I mean, if you're... Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Just we we pub- well, it's lazy we, at the very least. Right, right, right. We publicize the IPs. We can you know sign the message. Blah 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 blah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, generally speaking, these the, the 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 integrators and customers who do pull or people who do pull are basically dividing their rate limit. Uh, you know, to say hey, anything new? Hey, anything new? Hey, anything new? Which 
is painful for us and painful for them because they're wasting a lot of resources and processing time when we can just go, hey, this happened, and then you can act on it. So I do have a theory about one in-the-moment good reason for going to polling instead of webhooks. Mm-hmm. That like I don't think is a good reason, but I th- I've seen people make this choice, and it I understood the rationale at the time, which is that it's easier to test. Um, okay. Or some people believe it's easier to test mm-hmm. than inbound webhooks because they, uh, uh, in their their testing rig and their sort of experience base aren't used to uh, simulating sort of the inbound side of API calls, which I don't think is like a very good reason, but I've heard it enough times that it can't be nothing. Yeah. I think it's just one of the, I really think it's just a big misunderstanding. You know, I mean, uh, this comes up a fair amount, like, and you're totally right. And the funny thing to me is that it's like, well, I can just pull and I'll just use a tool like WebMock or whatever and make the call and have the cassette and call it a day, right? Um, and then people ask, you know, well, how would I ever learn what the payload would look like, you know? And it's this, basically the same thing. Same the payload. only difference is, you know, you're not going to use WebMock to receive that payload, right? You're going to... What, what I generally recommend you do is you trigger the event on GitHub or in Stripe or whatever once so that you have real data. You're not using what the developer site says it should be, um, you know, because those, those can be error prone. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no way. <laughs> and so, you know, you get that one payload and then I just put it in a fixtures file, like, you know, push event.json. And then presumably you've built the code in such a way that, the controller will receive a body of JSON, right? And then you should be passing that to a class or switching it to a class based on the event or whatever. And then you just test that once that the switching works. And then once that given this exact payload, you know, or am I doing what I want it to do or whatever? Um, and, and so I don't, I don't, I don't think that the, the story on, you know, testing it as easier is particularly valid. Um, I think, I think in some ways it's just people have more experience testing outbound API, you know, work because they just throw in VCR or whatever, um, the gem and just run things and oh, okay, great. Yeah. I have what I need. Uh, whereas webhooks would require you to consider, okay, I need to take this data and put it somewhere that my code can read. How do I do that? You know? Well, I, I totally agree. I don't think, I mean, I, agree basically word for word with what you said. But I think that you're right that at least for some segment of programmers that are a little bit less familiar with, um, I don't know, hand rolling things or, yeah. or have seen fewer code bases that there's some sort of mental leap. And like, you know, I, I guess my take is that as soon as a quorum have had that opinion, it, it's valid at some level. Yep. Like even if it doesn't logically make a lot of sense that, you know, there is this big mental divide between uh, processing the response to an API call you make sort of synchronously and yep. processing what effectively is the response to a API call you made a long time ago that's just now being fulfilled. Um, like, even though they're basically the same idea, it just doesn't seem to be that way to some not small segment. So, yeah. Anyways. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I, I think, and honestly, I think the other thing with polling that is in some ways ironic to me is that the easiest way to pull in the worst way is through a cron job, right? Like run this script every minute. Um, and you know, 
if you're doing it via cron, you're basically just saying like, run this regardless of if it's working or not. Just run it every minute, um, which is both bad for you in some ways. If, if the job for some reason takes longer than you expect, you'll have two jobs running at the same time, and they're probably trying to do the same exact thing. Uh, so you have a race condition, but it's also bad for the people that you're working with, right? Like GitHub or Stripe or whomever, because even though we're, you know, big companies or whatever, you know, we're, we, we do plan on some amount of normal traffic and then we do plan on some amount of spiky traffic, right? Um, but it's very possible in some ways that your behavior can change significantly if you just sort of let your scripts go AWOL or a bunch of people let their scripts go AWOL or every one of your 50 servers tries to do the same thing simultaneously for 100,000 customers or whatever. You know, it can be very gross. And so I think that the what webhooks allow you to do is both feel the pain, <laughs> you know, it's like if we're posting to you and you have to act on that, then it's going to require you to optimize your flow in a very good way for your system as well as our system. Um, because, you know, you need to be able to receive those events as they happen and not just sort of go and poll and say, all right, well, polled. Okay, great. There's a hundred thousand new events that happened in the last minute, or I'm just going to process these in line and then try and do that again the next minute. And then the next minute, you know, until you sort of break down that, that list. So I, I like webhooks because I also think it helps promote good architecture on the client side, um, in a friendly relationship with the server side. Now, do you have a script that runs periodically that sort of uh, spots the polling strategies and sends a, you know, friendly emoji filled email mentioning the webhook strategy options that they may consider? So we use uh, Splunk for basically most of our logging at GitHub. Um, and so what the API can do is, or, or with the API logging, what we can basically do is run a couple of commands and see very clearly who is polling and a lot of the times, because they're, if, if they're authenticated through OAuth apps, we can go, oh, it's this integration. We know what that integration does. Webhooks are a great solution to this problem. And then we do send that email. Now, one of the problems with webhooks is that they don't work with desktop clients, right? If you have a desktop application and you need to act on something as it happens, you would need to create some sort of intermediary server. We would post to your server. Your server would send an Amazon SNS, a push notification, uh, whatever, to the desktop application. Um, because webhooks require an HTTP server, and there's no real way to do that if there's an application running on someone's computer. Uh, and so that's the only case where polling is pretty much just okay because there's no good solution uh, around that short of creating your own intermediary service. Although, I mean, I don't know. That doesn't seem exactly like a like a bridge too far for GitHub to expect to me at least, but I'm sorry. What do you mean? Like if like, uh, it wouldn't be unreasonable. I don't think if you said, and if you have a desktop client, that's going to be consuming GitHub, uh, events that you should be running a server. That's oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. that because you're going to have a lot of chatter with that desktop app, not just from GitHub. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like GitHub's the only source of stuff that's going to that desktop client 99% of the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're totally right. And I mean, we, and we do, and we do communicate that, but I do think that at some point, you know, there, there is a reality of, uh, there's a lot of say, um, open source projects that are actually desktop applications, you know, um, mm -hmm. that just, you know, telling them to go boot up a server for their hundred thousand users is 
not, um, you know, insignificant. So uh, I, I am aware that we don't provide a good system for that. And I think there's actually a fair number of, you know, companies that don't uh, for desktop apps. But, you know, Twitter had to essentially, in my opinion, probably for the clients, you know, the desktop clients are, are, require a streaming solution, really. So, yeah. Uh, okay, let's recap some things that I've learned. So I've learned that uh, that webhooks are a a good thing that uh, are both efficient for the server and also sort of a, a nice way to create features that would be or what am I talking about for the server? They're nice for kind of the I don't know to to uh, make more efficient the use of server resources in response to client needs and also get clients information in a more um, timely fashion that uh, they can feel scary to people for reasons that aren't, um, that don't seem great, which just means that people are less familiar, mm -hmm. uh, that the major uh, event from GitHub that started it all and, and probably is still the biggest event, although yep. you didn't say that, is the uh, push event. Uh, yep. And uh, so let me t tell you something that I know. Which is this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast is brought to you by Braintree. Go and on. <laughs> would you like to know more? I would. Uh, Braintree does webhooks. I know oh, that for I don't a think, fact. Uh, uh, that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And also makes sense that we would have used them as the example instead of Stripe a hundred times. I used both. Thank you very much. <laughs> but I mean, hey, I was not responsible for that. Uh Braintree. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, anyhow, so uh, Braintree is code for easy online payments. If you're building a mobile app and searching for a simple payment solution, check out Braintree. Their V.0 SDK makes it easy to offer multiple mobile payment types. You can start accepting PayPal, Apple Pay, Bitcoin, Venmo, cards, and more, all with a single <laughs> integration. So since you know a little bit about their webhooks, well, question mark. Uh, so what would a service uh, like Braintree use webhooks for in the payment flow? So uh, it's it's generally through um, like subscription updates, disputes, disperse, uh, disbursements, like things that are out of band from your flow. Like you make a charge, you create a subscription, and then at some point the credit card falls out of date or is now invalid. To, to, you know, to get that sort of stuff, you would, you would receive a webhook. Awesome. Uh, so here are some things that you may want to know about programming on Braintree. In addition to that, they have a great set of webhooks that you'll learn more about Boom. when you get knee deep in. So uh, they have a simple, secure payment solution you can integrate in minutes. Um, you don't have to worry about taking days to integrate your payments uh, with Braintree. It should be done in much less time. So true story. The, uh, the copy that I read from for this ad says it's done in minutes and I just can't bring myself to say it. <laughs> I just can't say it. <laughs> Nothing's done in well, minutes. You should, in you should give it a shot. Uh, it's well, it's yeah, I agree. Next week, and, Sean debunks all of our sponsors. <laughs> yeah, but it is, it is a, I have actually taken a look at the documentation and it is quite simple. Um, I feel like I owe it to my programming brethren to never say that anything's just done in a jiffy, <laughs> but it's done very quickly with Braintree. If you don't have time, they can uh, give you a hand, give them a call and they'll either handle the integration for you or walk you through it. They've got, uh, uh, pre-built uh, libraries that help Android, iOS, and JavaScript clients and SDKs in seven languages like .NET, Node, uh, 
Java, Perl, PHP, Python, Ruby, uh, at least those seven. Uh, it's got elegant code in all those cases with clear documentation, and you can uh, integrate uh, at least a basic case in about 10 lines of in-app code. So I want to thank uh, Braintree for sponsoring this episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast. Oh, wait, one more thing. Uh, where should you go to learn more? Uh, go to braintreepayments.com. I like it sounds, braintreepayments.com slash Rails podcast. And if you go there, you'll get your first $50,000 in transactions fee free. All right, it's time to learn some more. Uh, all right, so we've got this sort of the basics of what webhooks are. Um, and that part I have experience with, but give me the, now the 202 course in what are the, you know, once you have your webhook solution set up and let's talk from the perspective of the service provider, the webhook provider, like GitHub or whoever, um, what goes wrong at scale? Oh my like, God. Everything. Exactly. Yeah. Murphy, Murphy goes <laughs> wrong at scale. So uh, this is actually really interesting and really complex in a way. Um, and so this is the Kyle's job security segment of the podcast. Yeah, I am really important. Uh, it is, it is so, extremely complicated. No, no, no. It's, the, the interesting thing is that, right, when generally speaking, when you are building a microservice, because that's essentially what webhooks are, you know, you're, it's, it's some degree of a microservice inside your, you know, your deployment. The, the, the thing is that you are dealing with N third parties, right? Or the N is the number of customers that you have that install webhooks. And each one of those third parties can implement SSL differently, can take a very long time to open a connection, can take a very long long time to read from the connection, can just take a long time and hold your connection open for no freaking reason. And so, you know, the, the complexity is primarily in... Um, or the, I guess the hard, the hard to mitigate complexity is in reaching the third party, right? And you know, continuously being able to communicate with them easily. Um, there's a bunch of moving parts in webhooks that I'll, I'll explain, but aren't necessarily difficult just because there are there are proven solutions that can that can fix those things. But at the end of the day, whereas you would normally be like, oh, I'm going to build a microservice that when I make this post to this thing, it'll, you know reverse the text and respond very quickly and I'll know that it should respond within, you know, 10 milliseconds and everything will be great or whatever. Um, not the case when you reach, you know, Joe's, you know, PHP site or, you know, Sally's had to dog Haskell, you know, project or whatever. Right. Honestly, it's probably all rail sites that are the slow ones, but you know, <laughs> You know. Now, when so, how long do you so do you have kind of a rule of thumb where you say, okay, uh, uh, consumers uh, or recipients of our webhooks must respond in X time in order to be, I don't know, compliant, or we kill it after you know one second or whatever. Oh man, or, that would be lovely. Uh, I mean, I, the real problem is is that uh, GitHub's platform team is really careful. Uh, and some people might snicker when they hear this, I guess, but uh, we, we really, really try to not break people's API integrations. Mm -hmm. And so we have customers that have implemented webhooks from day one, right? When the timeout was probably 30 seconds, right? Like you could take 30 seconds to say, yep, I have this data uh, before we would just, you know, time out your time out the, the attempt and move on. Now, to some extent, who really cares on your side how long it takes, right? Like, why do you care? 
Uh, like I'm playing devil's advocate. Like who cares if it's 30 seconds? Sure. So the, the main problem is that if we have, uh, 10 workers, right? We'll just, and a worker is a single threaded, um, a, a single threaded piece of code that is making deliveries to third parties. So it could only mm-hmm. deliver to one third party at a time, right? You have 10 of those. And then org- the Kyle organization goes and, and, and does some action on GitHub that generates a uh, hundred events. Right. And I reach out to, uh, you know, and then, and then as GitHub, I start to deliver those events to, you know, Kyle's webhook via my 10 workers. And so if each one of those workers takes 30 seconds, the code needs to either realize that Kyle's endpoint is responding very slowly. And so we should slow down how quickly we are delivering webhooks to them. So as to not affect the overall service, for example, otherwise, you know, for basically, you know, timeout times workers, you know, it's going to go, it's going to take that long to actually deliver all those webhooks. Um, and then clear up those workers for other people's jobs. And so there are times at GitHub where, you know, uh, a major event happens, which would be like, you know, mass unassigning a user from, you know, 10,000 issues or something, which can happen. And so we're going to generate all those events and send them along. And a good service would take those, uh, take those events and do the processing and background jobs, right? So it's just receive the event, queue a background job, Okay, done. 200. Um, many services do everything in line. And so they... Ass- Which is nuts, by the way. Right. So if you're doing that, dude, seriously, don't do that. Yeah. So just to be totally clear, if that example was was poor, is just, you know, every time you receive a webhook, you should be taking that payload and queuing a rescue job, a sidekick job, a background job to do the actual work that you anticipate and immediately return a 200 back to the web ser- the webhook uh, provider. Uh, because if you hold it in line, you have no guarantee that those payloads will, you know, be small. You don't know how many you're going to receive. And so it'd be very easy to essentially get DDoSed by a webhook provider because you're going to hold the connection open while you're doing work on your side that the webhook provider does not give a crap about, right? So I okay, so I think that's a good selfish reason why one should care. I think another one that I've I've sort of personally learned the hard way is that you will have bugs in the code that processes the payload coming from the webhook, oh, right? Because yeah. that's life. Yep. You're going to have a bug. And if you do not just persi- you know, like keep what it was that was the, you know, what the payload was in its exact form, then you won't be able to fix the bug and rerun it. Yeah. And like that to me is reason enough because, you know, you have one little issue and all of a sudden you lose a bunch of payloads and you can't rerun them anymore. Yep. That super sucks. Yep. Anyhow, continue. Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're totally right. And so, I mean, that's sort of one scenario that can come up in terms of just, you know, like how, like how, uh, you know, in, implementations from third parties can impact the the webhook provider. Um, now, quick, quick, yep. sort of like I I feel like the some number of people listening will be yelling at um, their podcast player right now, which is like this does make it seem like Ruby is not a great answer for the 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 uh, language in which to write the service that's delivering the webhook. Oh yeah, totally. Because, like, if you're really concerned about the overhead of another thread and you're delivering webhooks, which are, like, 98% waiting, waiting, yeah, 
maybe it's not the right tool. Yeah, no, you're right. Yep. It, it is GitHub's written in Ruby. Yep. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> yeah, I mean... I mean, that's to say, like, that it actually, like, people sweat this too early because GitHub delivers way more webhook payloads than just about anyone listening would ever deal with. Yeah. Um, and it's in Ruby and, like, not costing a gajillion dollars, I bet. And fine. Um, and it's also sort of entertain- entertaining that it's sort of like so obviously not the tool for the job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you're you are totally right. I mean, there's a bunch of other tools that this would better be written in. Um, but to be honest, you know, GitHub is for a very long time was basically just like, well, we'll just write it in Ruby and scale it, you know, via servers. Um, and you know, it, honestly, things are going fine that way right now in some ways. Um, but I mean, if you are a, a company or a person that is attempting to implement webhooks for your own business, I, I agree that vanilla Ruby is not the way to go. Um, look at a proven evented system that has a very good HTTP library um, and, and, and go that route instead. Now, what do you think of the... So what, just to take a quick detour here on this, um, what, like, uh, what's the conventional wisdom now around what what language is right for, for exactly the requirements you just said is node kind of the, is is that the one that most people use? I mean, obviously we've got others we're going to list, but is that, is that the kind of, uh, most popular choice? Um, you know, I honestly don't know, you know, mm-hmm. to be perfectly honest. Um, I have little experience with node. Um, I mean, from, from just the label, it would seem, be, due to its evented nature that it wouldn't be poor to do this um oh it definitely would be good yeah yeah right and so if you like if you don't mind javascript i guess yeah i mean most of my interest has been in um go or sure. like elixir or rust or whatever just primarily because you want a language that can do something evented or threaded in some fashion and you also want a system that has relatively low memory cost um, just so you can deliver as many webhooks as possible on a single server. Because with Ruby, you're both limited by memory, generally speaking, and by the single threaded nature of it, unless you use, you know, celluloid or event machine or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, that would be the two things that I would consider for a larger deployment is, you know, will this language allow me to do two things at once <laughs> um <laughs> now i mean in fairness to ruby it it does right, I mean, right, it, right. It, it, it's it, you can certainly have multiple threads waiting at once that's obviously straightforward yeah yeah, yeah. um but anyhow um yeah <laughs> so so okay so so lesson one about sort of dealing with uh webhooks at scale is that you know you have no idea what the client's gonna do yep and they're gonna do everything yep um, and, uh, you, I think that GitHub sort of MO on this, which is to not try to force people to be what they're not probably is the right advice Yep. because good luck changing. Yep. You know, exactly. That, they're going to be whatever they are. Yep. Uh, okay. So give me, give me another of the, like what happens with webhooks at scale. So one of the big problems that we actually have is, uh, SSL or more accurately TLS or SSL moving to TLS. Uh, you know, people almost always implement SSL incorrectly or 
do self-signed certificates, which isn't a big deal, but basically don't bother um, because we can't receive your, you know, we have no way to prove that that's a valid certificate. Um, as the, uh, the name escapes me, but as the SSL three bugs were coming out, um, you know, GitHub decided, okay, we need to just turn off, you know, SSL two, and then we need to turn off SSL three. And now we only deliver via TLS uh, for security reasons. And so, you know, dealing with everyone's, Hey, why am I not receiving these webhooks or, why did this webhook fail and then essentially work through troubleshooting SSL certificates has been relatively tricky. Keeping your CA certs up to date is super important. Understanding which ciphers are uh, should be supported and not um, because there are a ton of interesting sort of uh, mildly DDoSy bugs, you know, that you could that uh, that could come up where you know a bad actor could set up a webhook against a known, um, you know, a known. Uh, server that's going to respond very poorly or, you know, do something that's going to cra- uh, crash yeah. your server, blah, blah, blah. Um, so dealing with that's kind of crummy. Uh, so SLS, jeez, uh, <laughs> SSL is, uh, is something that's not a, like a huge problem in comparison, uh, but it's something that is, it has, I feel like has a lot of tribal knowledge when you start contacting everyone's servers and they're all misconfigured <laughs> inevitably, uh, you know, it ends up being quite quite a bit of pain. And so what we ended up doing was um, for the user for the user's perspective, we essentially were able to detect when an SSL cert was sort of broken in an un- unrecoverable fashion, uh, you know, using OpenSSL on the server. And then we just sort of put a nice little note with the webhook delivery pointing at, I think it's like sslchecker.com or whatever, which usually if you can get, you know, all green check marks on that, then you're good to go. Um, but it's, 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 it's something that once you go into the wild of the internet, kind of, you know, anything can happen and, and sort of almost always that's exactly what happens. So scale of one to 10, where's your like SSL, uh, and friends knowledge right now oh man um i'd probably say like a seven maybe um i work with a great uh colleague um uh who uh dirk jan who is like an ssl aficionado <laughs> and so i've learned a fair amount from him uh just dealing with random ssl bugs and people are asking why don't why am i not receiving my hooks and you know having to keep things updated work through ciphers roll back you know remove support for certain ciphers and certain uh now all ssl and whatnot uh he was a huge help in that but um but yeah between ssl and in some ways although a little bit smaller uh dns right because now you're making outbound connections you need to have access to a dns server that stays up to date very quickly and whatnot um can be a little bit tricky, I would say. Seven's pretty high. Yeah, I mean, two then, maybe three. <laughs> no, I believe I'm, I'm like a three or four, way lower than a seven. Um, but anyways, so I want to uh, I want to know a bit more about um, if you do any work to, I'm not sure what the right way to say this is, like pre-check the endpoint to see who owns it before you start delivering to it. Mm-hmm. But first I would like you to teach you about digital ocean. Ooh. <laughs> would you like to learn? I, I would love to learn. Well, great. So DigitalOcean provides simple and fast cloud hosting and it's built for developers. You can create a cloud server in 55 seconds for as little as five bucks per month. 
uh, like I said, it's built for developers and used by over 400,000 of them, including me, on some of my personal projects. It's highly scalable to meet the demands of a rapidly growing application or business. You can even resize uh, a droplet that you have that's a smaller size up as you grow. You can choose your OS, and they have one-click installs for apps like Django or Docker or uh, Rails or Magento or whatever else uh, you may be using. All of their servers are built on hex core machines with a dedicated ECC RAM and RAID SSD storage. Uh, they can have up to 20 CPUs, 64 gig of RAM, and 640 gigabytes of SSD hard drive space. You can deploy in regions all over the world, and throughout they have gigabit speeds and 99.99% plus uptime. They have full-featured DNS management to easily manage your domains and an active community offering the largest and most detailed set of tutorials on system administration. And I can tell you from personal experience that without that library, I probably would not have been able to be successful on DigitalOcean. So it's a pretty big asset. So you can head over to DigitalOcean.com, use the code RubyPodcast, and you're going to get 10 bucks credit towards your new account. Thanks to DigitalOcean for supporting the Ruby on Rails podcast. Okay. So tell me about how do you know if a given endpoint is okay to start, you know, spewing payloads to? Uh, is that something that you check or, or not? It's and not something that we check proactively. Um, so we used to have some code in the system that would essentially watch a endpoint and when it started acting incorrectly either maliciously taking too long to respond uh, we could never connect to it or whatever we would essentially ban them right we would like say all right let's just not deliver to this endpoint anymore um the problem in reality is that for a lot of endpoints it's a lot more nuanced um than that it's like lots of false positives. Right, exactly. And so, you know, GitHub took the approach of just saying, all right, we just won't do that anymore, right? We'll just sort of take the load of, of you know, delivering to people who will never see these payloads, for example. Um, but I think if you, were to, if you were to look at a new implementation right now, um, I think a very valid thing to do would be, you know, figure out what your tolerance is for delivering to a third party and they are not responding, uh, you know, if your webhook implementation as a provider allows for retrying, which is a, basically a given if you're working in the financial sector, but not so much everywhere else, then you know you you can basically just say, all right, we'll just like wait. You know, we'll just queue these up on our side, wait. You know, six hours, twelve hours, whatever, um, and then just start trying again, or try once the customer has come to your site, your API, whatever, and said, yep, the, the endpoint's good. My, I'm sorry, I fixed it. Um, and then start redelivering, right? Um, get, re, retrying is difficult primarily for, for GitHub, primarily because we never did it. And so a lot of implementations uh, of webhooks don't... Um, they would not respond well if they received the same event twice. So interesting. I didn't realize that. So, so if, if a GitHub webhook is sent and nobody's there to hear it, like it's, uh, or, or rather it doesn't uh, get a 200 response. It's not getting sent again. It is gone. It is, it is, it is gone to history. Yep. Free, free. Like the wind blows. Hmm. 
Yeah, that's interesting because then if you're if you're a consumer of it, I guess you have to make the choice, do I care? Right. And if you do, then I mean, do you have uh, so how do people deal with that? Like, it, let's say I do care and I can't have a situation where, um, I missed the events and, or, you know, I don't know, maybe the server was down for some amount of time and now I need to like replay what happened. Um, uh, or whatever reason I just did, you know, need to make sure that I'm not missing things. Sure. I mean, what do they do? Uh, so almost every, it might be every, but I'll say almost, uh, type of event has an API that you could read the data from. And so generally speaking, if you are down and you're not receiving the webhooks for whatever reason, once you come back up, you can go and say, given the, given the people I have access to who created a pull request, you know, since this time or since this ID or whatever, um, you know, and just sort of circle, go through everything to see what you missed run run them through your jobs and then just await more webhooks. But I can't directly query that idea, right? Exactly, so I can't say, no. hey, GitHub, what did I miss? Right, and that's generally called a claim check system where you are saying, hey, I missed some things. What haven't I? What, what did I miss since this ID that I know I got? Um, GitHub doesn't implement that. Uh, to be honest, a lot of places don't implement that. That's kind of like one of those things that people who like talking about webhooks uh, <laughs> like like to talk about. But um, some, um, in my lifetime, some uh, financial APIs that I've worked with have that sort of idea where you can query the deliveries directly, but that isn't something that we uh, currently offer. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't strike me as like, like it, it wouldn't, it doesn't seem like a strange thing to offer. Nope. Um, like, so, so it's not like it, like there wouldn't be massive hoop jumping to do it. Not that I'm saying that GitHub should or shouldn't, but yeah, but no, like, I mean, if, if you, if you were looking to do this, I mean, the two things that I would look at are you obviously, well, maybe this isn't obvious, but if you're a webhook provider like GitHub, we are logging all of the payloads that we sent you and the response that you gave us. Uh, and so if you were to respond with a non 200, it's very reasonable for us to be able to provide you, uh, you know, an API endpoint, uh, that says, you know, what deliveries do I have that don't have a 200 response or whatever? Uh, the piece that I would add to that is the ability. And this is where the claim check piece comes in is the ability for you to acknowledge that you've received those, you know? And so you go, Hey, I have ID one, two, three, what's left. And then you get them and then you respond back. Oh, Hey, these delivery IDs, I, I got those now. I'm good. And then you just go on from there. So, I mean, to make that concrete, you're just saying, like, if you could, you know, send patch requests to those to, like, flip a flag that said, yep, acknowledged or received or some such thing, yep. then that'd be fine. Yep. Now, if you were build, so if you were building the GitHub uh, sort of platform from scratch or working on something similar in the future for your own thing or something else... Would you implement that, or do you think it just doesn't matter much? Like, would you build a claim check uh, feature set? Honestly, probably not. Um, I think that most people uh, just want exponential retries um, or the ability to say, try now. Uh, they don't really want, what did I miss? Um, now, the one place where this is an interesting sort of academic argument is with streaming APIs, um, you know, I would love a streaming API that I connect, I lose a connection, I connect back, and, and the streaming API gives me a catch-up. 
you know, like, this is what you've missed while you've been gone. Yeah, like, you, like, point the cursor back to exactly. point in time. And yeah. they just give you a giant dump, and then they continue on with what they're doing. And I think in some ways that's really how webhooks should act. I mean, I also think yeah. webhooks should really be much more grouped. Um, I mean, real time is seconds uh in this in this scenario you know um if i click if i click you know merge on github.com github will deliver that to you in about two seconds but i think somewhere between five and eight seconds is very reasonable um you know depending on the type of event as well Uh, and so in a perfect world i feel like a lot of these events would be grouped up and delivered to you with one push and they uh, the push would have multi or sorry not one push one post and that post would have a multitude of events in it and now if you aren't able to receive that we would wait two minutes whatever a minute 30 seconds 10 seconds whatever give it another shot wait a little longer keep going until you reach some sort of threshold at which point we'll continue queuing up your events for some period of time let's just say three days or something um you know hoping that you come back online and we can continue to try this and then catch you up um the the one problem with retries in general is that most webhook apis are not guaranteed to be ordered and most are not guaranteed to be delivered once and only once um, because we can't, you know, know for sure on your side that I guess you've received it. But 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 at the same time, for us, we don't know for sure. Well, our system is not built in such a way that it's guaranteed to be once and only once. You know, it's it's intended to be once and only once, but it's uh it's not something that our architecture right now uh, can guarantee. And so that's something that I think uh, you need to decide depending on what you want to use to go from event to delivery. Um, whatever is in between those two steps, whether that be a queue, whether that be a message bus, whether that be an uh, you know, event processing stream or whatever, um, you know, that is where I think the meat and potatoes of the core decision of how should this webhook service work uh, actually lives um, because what you choose there will impact your ability to do once and only once do retries, you know, depending on what you're logging and whatnot will impact, you know, how this, uh, you know, how your customers will be able to deal with their, their, their own downtime. I feel like someone could write a book called everything that I learned about writing robust systems. I, I, uh, learn from implementing sidekick effectively. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it really, I mean, like if you, I feel like if you ha- have used sidekick for a lot, like you get all this stuff, right? Yep. Cause you're like, okay, you know, the last thing I'm going to do is have that endpoint not be able to take two of the same webhooks effectively. Yep. Like, and it's, it's, I, I didn't start using sidekick until, I don't know, you know, a couple years into programming in in rails and, uh, uh, it, it was funny how much that improved my capabilities. Yep. Uh, it, it seems like many of the lessons you've talked about with how to be an effective consumer of, well, uh, not just consumer, consumer of webhooks and deliverer of webhooks. Right. So, sort of, you could learn that you, all that applies. You know, if, if you know how to do background job uh, management effectively, you'd be pretty good. Right, right. Yeah. Do you guys have the, uh, like, uh, retry now feature? Yeah, so if, only through the UI. Uh, so if you go to GitHub.com oh, and, really? and click on your webhook, yep, you can click redeliver uh, on any failing, well, any payload, but uh, any failing payload, we for sure. Gotcha. I like that feature from other um, webhook uh, providers that I use right now. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's sort of a, I don't know. It's an, it's, it's a nice efficient way to deal with that issue. Cause it comes up, you know, where you're like, oh, yeah. okay, like this thing I need to, cause the, the alternative is that you, you know, have another job that, that goes and in, in queries, the API and takes that payload and then chucks it into the same service that the, the other one was using, yep. but it's kind of nice to, to say, okay, there's one path inbound here Yep. and this is it. Yep. Totally. Especially because, like, my trust level with services having, like, actually using the same exact serialization between the two is not 100%. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Like, I'm like, I know that this is, like, you know, the way that they're serializing the you know, response or, or payload on the webhook side is X. And I know that that's supposed to be the same as X as uh you know the response on the api but i've been burned too many times on that yeah yeah definitely <laughs> so that's why i use retry if it's available yeah so i'm like okay i i'm not gonna i'm not gonna subject myself to that yeah <laughs> uh, uh, inconsistency <laughs> you know who else uh, i bet wouldn't subject themselves to that sort of inconsistency who codeship Codeship would not subject themselves to that sort of inconsistency. And Codeship is, uh, I would guess, a one of the... A proud recipient of GitHub webhooks. <laughs> I would think they are consuming... They were they are munching on many GitHub yeah. webhooks every single minute. Yep. Gluttons for yeah. punishment. <laughs> right? Uh, Kyle is sending them many messages every single moment. <laughs> uh, so let me tell you about CodeShip. CodeShip is, is a hosted continuous delivery service uh, focused on speed, security, and customizability. You can set up your uh, CI server or solution on CodeShip in a matter of seconds and automatically deploy when your tests have passed. CodeShip supports your GitHub projects like we just uh, were talking about and Bitbucket. And you can get started with CodeShip's free plan today. CodeShip actually just launched, now this isn't like just launched anymore, but like three months ago, they launched organizations and organizations work similarly to how GitHub organizations work. You can basically create a team, set permissions for specific team members, and then improve the collaboration amongst team members uh, uh, in an organization uh, in your continuous delivery workflow. You can maintain centralized control over your organization's projects and teams with their organization plan, and it's quite uh, quite helpful for kind of the practical needs of business teams. So I recommend you to give it a shot. If you visit codeship.com slash 5x5ruby, that's 5x5ruby, you'll save 20% off any premium plan for the next three months. Again, 5x5ruby at codeship.com, you're going to get 20% off any premium plan, and as I've said many times before, I am a very uh, happy and longtime CodeShip customer. It's one of the most valuable tools that I use, so uh, I'm vouching for it. Go give them uh, a shot. I feel like the segues in this episode were good. I wonder if that's the topic or uh, the, the allergies. <laughs> I think it might be the wine, actually. <laughs> There's really not been that much wine consumed. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you got to stay mm. warm when you're on the deck. I'm not, you know, today, so, uh, yeah, uh, give an update on the location of my podcast recording. So I decided to try, um, Kayla, our 19 year olds, uh, like bedroom desk. Cause it's sort of like in a part of the house. That's a little bit away from things. It has a door that you can shut as any teenager's <laughs> bedroom would, would have a well-tested door that stays shut. Uh, and it seems to work okay. The reason I haven't used it before is that, uh, directly above me are like people and babies and dogs. So I thought maybe the floors would be too loud, but they don't seem to be. Hmm. 
Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, okay, we've got time for one last webhook tip. Uh, this is a, a tip that you've learned scaling GitHub's webhooks. Oh, boy. Come on, you've been doing so well. you got one more. Um, so I guess the one tip that I'll, that I'll say that's not really scaling as much as a course correction that we did uh, was make the... Make whatever serial... Okay, I'm going to assume if you're doing webhooks, you also have an API, right? I mean, it seems like that's a very safe assumption. And so make sure that your webhooks use the same exact serializers as your API. That's what I was just talking about. Yeah. You guys you guys were one of the people that I've become afraid of? Yeah. Oh. Yeah, that's us. <laughs> well, you were not the source of this fear of mine, but <laughs> you were not alone. I am positive of that. <laughs> so let's let's make sure we're being clear. Okay. So like, what exa- Like, what's the what's the scenario that uh, that sort of is is what you guys did that was down the wrong path? That's the same one I joked about. And then like, what's the course correction? Yeah. So I mean, so what so what we used so webhooks used to be tied very closely to GitHub's newsfeed. Uh, and so every time an event would happen and it would show up in your newsfeed, we would use that sort of same event propagation to build the webhook that we would then end up sending to you, which meant that as new features or bugs were fixed in the API payloads, the webhooks wouldn't receive those updates and fixes. Now, in some ways, that's a good thing, right? I mean, we don't want to be breaking anything. We don't want to be removing fields. But I I do think that as we add new features or as we add new data, you know, like counts and, um, you know, uh, the new org, the new org features that just went out, being able to get that data without removing any fields uh, was super valuable. And so for us at GitHub now, when an event is propagated, the same sort of hydration that happens at the API level now also happens to deliver the webhook to you within the context of like the three major pieces, which is the, the, what happened, the action, the, 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 who we're talking about, what, you know, what action, this action was taken on this object. Um, and then, you know, who did it, uh, you know, what repository, what user, what actor, that sort of thing. And so those four things are ultimately hydrated by the same serializers that are, uh, you know, returning the same data at GitHub, uh, the GitHub API. I think that's super good. Uh, it allows us to basically worry about one place from going from active record object to JSON um, or, you know, form encoding uh, ultimately. But instead of having two separate systems that you need to keep updated, which I think makes pretty good sense, um, this requires your your sort of company and your team to ensure that you're not actually making breaking um you know breaking payload changes uh as as you're as you're doing this work so one of the things that we ended up doing sort of on accident recently is uh versioning webhooks and so this has no customer facing uh impacts right now but um for all intents and purposes webhooks have a version similar to how an api endpoint has a version uh, so that, you know, at some point in the future, we could allow customers to say, yep, I would like the new types of payloads for this, you know, that maybe contains more expensive data or just better formatted data or whatever. Um, you know, it, the webhooks are ultimately just an outbound API. Like they're not that different from your 
normal API. And so the things that you'd be concerned about for your API, like making a change and breaking an end user, um, things like pagination and, you know, keeping, uh, you know, these payload, these responses well sized, uh, you should worry about for both your web API and your webhook slash outbound API. Um, and so I think that's kind of a tip that we learned a little bit late in the game uh, and required us to sort of rebuild some stuff when we came out with organization webhooks. Um, but I, I, if you're going to start a new, I think that's a, I think I do think that's a, a, an important, you know, sort of fix, I guess. Yeah. And as a consumer of many of them, it's, oh man, it's such a big deal when you can sort of say, okay, we, and, and I look for this language, like, this is serialized using the exact same serializer as this API endpoint. Yeah. Like this is just a effectively a delayed response to a persistent uh, request you've got to this API endpoint that we fulfill every time something changes. Yep. Like I look for that. And if they're not saying that I steer far away from assuming. Yeah, totally. Uh, Hey, this was good. I, I learned things. Yeah, uh, I'm uh, I'm super happy to talk about this to anyone that has interest in, you know, pri- primarily on the service provider side. Um, and so if, you, if you're at a company that has an interest in, you know, setting up webhooks or whatever, you, know, you can always feel free to reach out to me on Twitter uh, at KDagle or uh, you can email me uh, at Kyle at digitalworkbox.com. Um, because yeah, I mean, this is something that I, I, I've been trying to read a lot about cause I'm always curious how other people are architecting their systems in the background, but compared to, I know we talked about this, Sean, a little bit compared to APIs, I just feel like there's less content available. And so I'm hoping to sort of pick this up a little bit just to help others who want to do this, uh, because it seems like it's, you know, it seems like being closer to real time is more, more and more important, which was kind of a duh thing, but you know, the, like Slack is has ruined. I think every company's ability to just have a web API. <laughs> I think they've they've ruined some number of companies. Just a few. <laughs> They're the <laughs> ender of worlds. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've yeah. been thinking on that point. I've been wondering if we should do a a Slack Basecamp episode. I sort of feel like I feel like that that maybe, but I'd have to try Basecamp three before we could do that. Oh boy. Uh, and I, I don't know, maybe I'll think it is like a, a legitimate rival to Slack. I don't know. Yeah. Could do. seems like a tall order, but, uh, you never know. I'm very interested. I mean, cause clearly that's, I mean, I know that they don't say this, but clearly that's, uh, uh, something they're interested in combating. And I'm very curious about how they've done so. Cause you know, probably they're zigging where they're zagging. And I think that'll be interesting, but anyhow. Uh, one quick comment on what you just said is that I think that the way to get webhooks, uh, uh, sort of more considered in the popular conversation is to fold them into API conversations. Right. Like, I feel like that's the answer Yep. is that like, if you're designing an API, you need to think about the webhook side too. And certainly if you're, if you add on a webhook later, absolutely folding it into your API is like, you know, mission critical. Yeah. Uh, and I wonder, so for a future episode, I think a very interesting topic would be like, so I've got a number of applications now that have JSON API compliant APIs. And I think that it's very interesting to say, okay, if you have gone JSON API, you know, one Oh compliance as your sort of religion on the server side, what does that imply you should do with webhooks? Yeah. Cause I actually think the answer is interesting. Yeah. Like, so for example, do you, should you allow 
the recipient of the webhook to define what the include should be on the payloads? Hmm. I would think yes, but I've never thought about it before. Right. Should you allow them to like specify sparse field sets so that they have smaller payloads to deliver if they or to contend with if they only care about one single thing? Right. I think so, probably, but I haven't thought about it. Yeah. Uh, it's very. Uh, my suspicion is that JSON API would make for far better webhooks solutions. Uh, but I, I haven't thought about it a lot, and I haven't implemented. Uh, well, the, the the thing that's the thing that's interesting in uh, without kind of going on too far with this is just you know there's a lot of things you take for granted with a normal API that's inbound, right? Where because ev- on every request you're able to specify a content type or a query parameter or whatever that says like this is the type of data I would like back from you. Um, you know, but I feel like with a webhook, while you could do that, you could just, you know, have a record on your side that says this is what these people are asking for or whatever. Um, you know, it's 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 very static. You know, you're saying this is exactly what I would like and I would like to kind of keep it this way until I tell you otherwise, which is fine. Um, but then you kind of have this meta problem with webhooks where the customers or the integrators, the people creating the webhooks and consuming the events need to keep those hooks up to date. You know, they need to be able to say, you know, Hey, I would now like this type of information on these type of webhooks or whatever. It's not undoable. It's not a bad technical problem. It's just a kind of weird user experience problem. Um, and, and I think that's where a lot of the interesting questions can kind of be solved. Cause I do think that, you know, making making webhooks as thin as possible is a very good thing for everyone involved. Um, but you know, how to define that and how to keep them up to date uh, in an easy way, um, I, I feel like is kind of a, a a tricky a tricky problem. Not technically, it's very easy technically. It's just you know, kind of a little bit gross to keep all that state between the two systems consistently. Well, I, I mean, I think maybe I mean so. I think this is a topic for another show, but I think that JSON API may have much of the answer to this. Because, like, I I am a consumer of JSON API all the time now, and it's it has many things about it that are quite genius. And one of the big ones is deferring to the client choices about inclusion of related resources and uh, which fields should be included. Mm-hmm. Like that is such an obvious, once you've used it, you're like, Oh, of course that's not a decision for the server to make. Of course it's not. That's ridiculous for the server to make those decisions. Um, you know, it's, of course it's better for the client too, because clients vary. Uh, uh, my suspicion is that that has very big implications on the webhook side too, but you know what? We've got many shows to record. So let's <laughs> Let's, Let's not it. get it all in just on this now. We don't. We, we can't waste it all right now. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, if, if you already said where to reach you, your Kate Daigle everywhere. Okay. That's important. Exactly. And uh, for those that want to say hi to me, I'm barely known on Twitter, GitHub, and most things. So, till next time. Adios.